This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the show. We begin with breaking news, a major reshuffle of the Kremlin. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has just announced that he and the entire Russian government will resign. Fred Plotkin is live in Moscow for us. Uh, Fred, huge development here. Talk us through what more we know at this stage. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Julie. It certainly is a massive development. It really one that came absolutely surprising to folks here in Russia, uh, to everybody who's observing Russia as well. I can tell you that when this announcement happened, Russian state TV didn't even break into it. They continued their regular programming because even they hadn't heard and they hadn't been informed that this was going to happen. Then a couple of minutes later, there was some video of Vladimir Putin speaking with Dmitry Medvedev. And then he made this announcement saying that he and his entire government would resign. Now, I have his statement here. I'm going to paraphrase from it a, a, a little bit. So so forgive me for not looking up at the camera the entire time. He said that uh, significant changes not only to a number of articles of the Constitution, but to the balance of power as a whole were announced. Vladimir Putin had his State of the Union address today uh, where he called for some changes to Russia's Constitution to give actually the parliament more power and less power to the presidency, which some people see as Vladimir Putin preparing for 2024 when his term runs out and when normally he would have to leave power as far as the Constitution of this country is concerned. So he announced some things that he wanted to happen, and part of that pertained to the way that the prime minister is elected, which he says in the future should happen by the parliament and not by the presidency as it has been in the past. So those were some fundamental things that Vladimir Putin said earlier today. And uh, if, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, then in his statement, he said, in the context of that, we as the government should provide the president of our country with the opportunity to make all the decisions necessary for this. And in these conditions, I believe it would be right in accordance with Section 117 of the Constitution, the government would be uh, would resign. So Dmitry Medvedev there announcing his resignation, announcing the entire government's resignation. Vladimir Putin was actually seated next to him as he made this announcement on national TV then. And Vladimir Putin then accepted that resignation. He said not everything had gone well, but he did thank the government. And then Vladimir Putin said, that this current government is going to st uh, stay in power as in a caretaker function while Vladimir Putin speaks with every single minister personally uh, and then decides whether or not these ministers are going to be able to continue or get back into their por portfolios or whether they will leave. Now, uh, as far as Dmitry Medvedev himself is concerned, who, of course, for four years was also the president of this country, there is already talk of him going on Russia's National Security Council. But right now, what you have here is a massive shakeup uh, in the government, a massive shakeup possibly also in the power structure here as well. But, of course, Vladimir Putin still very much in the driver's seat as far as Russian politics concerned as far as the Russian state itself is concerned as well, Julia. Absolutely. And if we look ahead as well, the belief here is perhaps this is again Vladimir Putin working towards the future, what life looks like beyond his presidential term here in, in 2024. But for me, critical in the short term, foreign relations. Sergei Lavrov, the face of Russia outside uh, to the international community. Do we think he remains... Sergey Lavrov, that's going to be one of the big decisions that, uh, that we're going to be waiting for uh, as well. He's obviously been the Russian foreign minister for an extremely uh, long period of time. He's also someone who's very much the face of Russian uh, foreign policy uh, as well. As Vladimir Putin was saying there, he's going to see, he's going to talk to all these ministers uh, one by one. He's then going to see whether or not they're going to continue their portfolios. Uh, Sergey Lavrov is one of the ones that, that we're certainly looking at very closely, the Russian foreign minister. He is, I believe, 69 or 70 years old. Uh, 
uh, already. Again, he's been in power for an extended period of time. Whether or not he is going to continue on, that was something that was a question already going into this uh, and has been a question for a while, whether or not he would, he would finish uh, the governmental terms, uh, the term until its end or whether or not uh, he would resign or step down before or go into retirement before. So that's certainly going to be one of the main questions. But in general, this is a big shakeup of Russian politics and of Russian policy, also as far as financial politics is, is concerned as well. Of course, that's a key thing uh, for the Russians with this country uh, under some pretty immense sanctions from the United States, from, some, from, from the international community as well. Of course, financial policy and keeping this country running economically is something that's also a very, very big deal and is going to be very key looking forward and moving forward to see how that's going to evolve, Julia. Absolutely. The domestic story and, of course, foreign relations here, too. Fred, great to have you with us. Fred Pleiken there. Yeah. Once again, that breaking news story, the resignation of the Russian government. All right, let's bring it back to uh, first move now because there are other big stories going on. We are counting down to today's ceremonial signing of the U.S.-China trade deal phase one, of course. We've also had more U.S. bank earnings today, too. It's another busy day. Not really, but you can tell that from uh, looking at the futures. Take a look at Wall Street right now. We are a little bit softer here, as you can see, two tenths of 1% pullback. It adds to the softening that we saw from record highs in Tuesday's session to this after Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin suggested that tariffs on Chinese goods will remain until after the 2020 elections. I have to say that's not entirely unexpected, but it remains a concern, therefore, for global trade. We did see the Dow breaching at 29,000 once again, but it did fail to hold there, just like many others. You know, the Dow just seems nervous the closer it gets to 30. Yes, moving on. And perhaps, uh, no surprise, export-sensitive stocks across Asia also softened in Wednesday's trade. Chinese stocks were the underperformers, in fact, as you can see, they're down over half a percent. What everyone is waiting for at this moment, details. Details on just what is contained within that 86-page trade agreement. President Trump reportedly called it a big, beautiful monster. Not so monstrous when you consider that the Brexit divorce deal was over 500 pages. I mean, they're barely trying. The question is, will it have substance? That's something other countries want to know, like Germany. New numbers today showing the German economy grew just 0.6% last year. That's the weakest growth in six years. And yes, exports dragged. This is the story. Let's get right to our drivers where we're talking trade. And so is Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin once again. Listen to what he said about the phase one trade deal just moments ago. I think it's a very significant deal. It's the first time we've ever had an encompassing agreement with China on all these issues. It deals with intellectual property, forced technology transfer, deals with agricultural, structural issues, financial services, currency purchases, and a fully enforceable uh, agreement. So there's a dispute mechanism. David Carver is in Beijing for us. David, great to have you with us. The U.S. administration is saying this is a huge win for the United States. How's Beijing and the government there spinning this? It is interesting to, work, to note here, Julia, that it has been a rather muted reaction from Beijing and from officials here in China. They have kept, to be blunt, quiet on this. The, the last uh, of any substance that we've seen was, I was looking back, about a month, December 13th, when this was initially announced. And that was just kind of a vague um, relaying of what the nine chapters would be in this 86-page document, as you laid out. The details still remain a mystery, but what we are hearing from the U.S. side of things 
is that this obviously will have the substance of $200 billion worth of purchases. Now, they're saying everything from manufacturing to the service sector to energy to agriculture. Of course, that's huge for the farmer constituency that President Trump has continued to push on. Uh, but you heard Secretary Mnuchin say there that this is go, goes beyond that, you know, that this goes into currency manipulation. Uh, they just this week removed China from that designation as a currency manipulator. That is something here that I've noticed has been harped on in state media. It, it's been several uh, op-eds that have come forward saying that China should have never been put in that position and that finally the U.S. is making a move that is, in their words, uh, the right move that will get them on a path towards perhaps seeing some sort of resolution between the two countries going forward beyond phase one, because after all, there are still deeper structural issues, Julia, that we're looking at. But Secretary Mnuchin also hit on the fully enforceable factor, because that's also been a big question. How is it that you can keep China from reneging on their promises here? The secretary has maintained that this is something that uh, they're confident will be enforced and that they will take proportionate action if China does not live up to this agreement. What would that look like? Perhaps laying back on some of these tariffs. China seems to now be just avoiding all the the details and, and the talk so far. They want to see this come to ink. And once that happens, we'll see how they react. But it'll be interesting to note if they really put much detail out there in, in the official format, Julia, because you know, as of now, they're keeping quiet, suggests maybe a couple of things. One is that uh, the Trump administration is right in saying that this is a win for Trump, or perhaps that they've seen this tumultuous relationship go back and forth so many times that it's not until things are solidified and signed upon do they feel like they can breathe easy somewhat at least. Yeah, you raised some really great points, David, I have to say. And actually, the first of its kind, this this deal, and tried to tackle some of those imbalances. So we shouldn't take it away from, from the administration here in the United States, too. David Colbert, great to have you with us uh, over in Beijing there. Right. All right, to our next driver now, to the banks. Goldman Sachs beating expectations for quarterly revenue as it joined its rivals in posting pretty strong bond trading results in particular, but its profits did fall some 26% from a year earlier, missing estimates there. The comparables were tough. Bank of America, meanwhile, profits also dropped at 4% from a year ago. BlackRock, meanwhile, reporting a 40% jump in quarterly net income. Paula Monica joins us now to uh, break down all the details. Let's go with the banks first here. And uh, specifically, I think we'll begin with what we saw from Goldman Sachs here. Yeah, Goldman Sachs, the uh, revenue did top forecast, but earnings, as you pointed out, was a bit disappointing. Part of that was what the bank described as a bit of a slowdown in MANA activity in the fourth quarter, which hurt fees, but also the bank had to incur higher legal costs. They are bracing for a potential fine tied to that 1MDB Malaysian money laundering scandal. We have had reports that Goldman Sachs is likely to pay more than a billion dollars, perhaps as much as $2 billion, to settle uh, these uh, charges. And uh, Goldman Sachs obviously putting some money away in its legal reserves to prepare for that. And that's hurting profits in the short term. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And uh, I want to skip on now to uh, BlackRock as well, because they made a bit of a splash yesterday with their shift to more sustainable investing. And I think the whole market was talking about what this means for other asset managers. Bit of a splash here, too, in terms of uh, the numbers that they uh, produced today as well. 
Yeah, definitely, Julia. Obviously, Larry Fink really making some big news yesterday by talking about how BlackRock was going to focus increasingly on, you know, the environment and sustainability with regards to their ESG investments. And, uh, you know, let's be honest here. BlackRock can move the markets because they are the owner of the gigantic iShares family of funds and ETFs, which many retail investors love, these index ETFs. And iShares ETFs continue to pile in a lot more money, attracting, you know, $25 billion more in new assets during the quarter. And that is one of the reasons why BlackRock reported results, the top forecasts. Paula Monica, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. New video appears to show two missiles striking a Ukrainian passenger jet in Iran. The video, published by the New York Times, shows the missiles hitting the plane around 20 seconds apart. So as you just saw, that was the first missile streaking towards the plane with the impact there noted on the screen. Now, if you keep watching, a second missile appears heading in the same direction. The Times says this is security camera footage that it was able to verify. But I have to say, uh, CNN has not yet independently confirmed the video. There you go, there's the second missile. Let's move on. The U.S. House is set to send the impeachment articles against President Trump to the Senate today. Democrats plan to add new evidence when they send the articles to the upper chamber. Athena Jones is live in Washington with the latest. We're set to hear, uh, Athena, and great to have you with us from Nancy Pelosi at 10 a.m. Eastern this morning. But what are we talking about here as well in terms of new evidence? Uh, well, first of all, in a, a, a little under an hour, we're going to hear from Speaker Pelosi, who will be the House impeachment managers. Those are the people who will be prosecuting the case against President Trump in the Senate. So we'll learn those names in just under an hour from now. And a little later, the House will vote to approve those impeachment managers and to formally transmit the articles to the Senate. But you just mentioned this new evidence that has just become now a part of the record that's going to be handed over to the Senate. This is evidence from Lev Parnas, who is an associate of Rudy Giuliani, who was, of course, President Trump's personal lawyer. Uh, Lev Parnas was part of Giuliani's efforts in Ukraine to try to get the Ukrainian uh, President uh, Vladimir Zelensky to open an investigation or to announce an investigation, I should say, into to the Bidens and this company, uh, Burisma. So among these documents, we're talking about phone records, text messages, even letters and handwritten notes. Uh, for example, there is a previously undisclosed letter that Giuliani sent to uh, the president-elect Zelensky before he was sworn in in May asking for a meeting uh, that Giuliani wanted to meet with the president in his role as President Trump's personal lawyer and at President Trump's direction and, and with his consent. So we have that letter. There's also, uh, interestingly, a handwritten note on Ritz-Carlton Hotel Stationery, the Ritz-Carlton in Vienna, this note written by Lev Parnas, and it says, get Zelensky to announce investigation into the Bidens. So this is the kind of information that certainly Democrats feel supports their case against the president. They're looking to add this to, to the evidence, to, to, the, to the record they send to the Senate. Now, of course, we don't know for sure, and this is something that we learned from uh, the Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff on the House side. He said, we don't know for sure 
sure whether the Senate will allow new evidence that wasn't part of the House's earlier hearings. They didn't vote on this because this is new evidence that that uh, Parnas was just able to uh, to release or get hand over to these House committees. So that is one question we'll have to see. But Representative Schiff said, look, it's going to be difficult for the Senate to ignore this new relevant uh, evidence here. Julia? Yeah, and it's going to be fascinating to see about witnesses as well. Uh, Athena Jones, we will continue to watch. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, in Tuesday's uh, Democratic presidential debate, this was the moment that has people talking. It's Senator Elizabeth Warren seemingly refusing to shake Bernie Sanders' hand. Six uh, Democratic rivals sparred in Des Moines with less than three weeks until the Iowa caucuses. The panel was asked about Warren's claim that Sanders told her privately a woman cannot win a presidential election. I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? (laughs) I disagreed. Can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy and me. We're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up as the celebrations commence for the signing of the Phase 1 China trade deal, we look ahead to the prospects of Phase 2. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to the show. I just want to remind you of our breaking news this morning out of Moscow. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev announcing that he and the entire Russian government will resign in a major reshuffle at the Kremlin. Medvedev made the statement on Russian state TV, sitting next to President Vladimir Putin. Medvedev said the government was resigning to give Putin room to make changes to the constitution. The president thanked members of the government for their work. This comes after the president proposed constitutional amendments that would weaken his successor. His term, of course, ends in 2024. All right, let's take a look at what's going on in Wall Street as well. U.S. stocks remain on target for a lower open this morning as the U.S. and China get set to try to sign, my apologies, phase one of the trade deal news that billions of dollars worth of tariffs will remain in place well into 2020 has dampened the mood a little bit and did in the session yesterday too. Now, quite interesting, as we were discussing with David earlier on in the show, Chinese media seemingly spinning this trade deal as a big win for consumers, assuring the public that it will get fresh U.S. products on the shelves. Christina Hooper, Chief Market Strategist at Invesco, joins me now. Great to have you with us. You've said that the most important thing, I think, about this deal actually is the psychology that comes with the signing of this deal and the ratcheting down of tensions. Oh, absolutely. Because keep in mind that what we've seen really over the last few years is a real ratcheting up of economic policy uncertainty. And that causes companies to be a lot more apprehensive, reluctant to spend. And I think that's why we've seen CapEx spending lower than one would assume given the 2017 tax reform legislation. So this could be a game changer. Do you think it kicks back in? I mean, we we saw a bit of the soft in, in market activity yesterday, just in light of Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin's comments that, look, the tariffs are going to remain. We want to sign a phase two trade deal here. And until we see 
follow through on this promise and action from the Chinese here, including agricultural purchases, um, those tariffs remain. Yeah, we could certainly see economic policy uncertainty go back up if tensions flare up again. And there's certainly that potential. And keep in mind, we still don't know what's in the agreement. Yes. We've gotten some <laughs> indication of what will be in there, but we really don't know. And in fact, as of yesterday, it was reported that it was still being translated into Mandarin. Uh, so this is something that could be a surprise uh, to many. We'll have to wait and see what actually is delivered once it's signed. Chances of phase two? in 2020 being agreed? Slim to none and Slim just left town. Really? Yeah. You, I mean, to be fair, you've been a skeptic all the way along and you're saying this is uh, this is really not happening. It's going to be interesting to see because uh, um, what about for markets more broadly? I mean, one of the markets I think that's been most beaten up as a result of this actually is is China and the comparison between what we've seen for stock markets in the United States versus in Asia and China and related actually. Um, well, China's Value. experienced a bunch of headwinds over the last few years, uh, not the least of which, of course, is the trade war. But we've also seen a general slowdown in the ch Chinese economy, largely due to deleveraging and and um, and the effects of that. Um, but China has actually gotten a very nice boost over the last few months. Uh, I certainly would point to specifically the end of balance sheet normalization. Yes, uh, that occurred in September, and then fourth quarter was a great quarter for emerging markets, which uh, coincidentally outperformed U.S. stocks, but China was a standout within EM equities. And does it continue? I think it could very well continue. Certainly, Chinese equities would get a very nice boost from this phase one trade deal. Uh, so if it holds, if we see that tensions don't flare up, I think that's enough, uh, coupled with that end of balance sheet normalization to continue to propel Chinese equities forward. And markets in Southeast Asia, too, very much yes, connected to the absolutely. economy. And I mean, that's one area where we're actually seeing not just monetary stimulus, but fiscal stimulus. We've got India set to deliver corporate tax cuts in April. China's certainly uh, throwing fiscal and monetary stimulus at its economy. And you also have Japan planning some fiscal stimulus. Yeah, it's also about the domestic stories and very important to put that, uh, put that out there. What about Russian assets at this moment? I mean, we've been talking about the breaking news this morning and the resignation of Dmitry Medvedev, the prime minister, and the entire cabinet. I mean, that's politics and that's one thing. But what are your views as a house here on Russian assets in general? Well, uh, Russia, I think, is emblematic of one of the key risks of emerging markets, which is that geopolitical instability, right? And we've certainly seen that this morning with what I think is a very significant change yes. to the Russian government. Um, so that always introduces uh, a layer of risk. So I would be apprehensive about Russia assets, with the exception of if we see any kind of increase in tensions between the U.S. and Iran. If this were to actually really become something like a full-scale war or something similar, um, that could mean that oil-producing countries outside the Middle East benefit. Yeah, energy. Energy producers, in the end, yeah. benefit most or are damaged least. Exactly. Yeah. Christina Hooper, great to have you with us. Thank Thanks you so much me. for that. Christina Hooper, Chief Market Strategist at Invesco. All right, we're counting down to the market open this morning. A slightly softer start expected. Lots to come today. Remember the signing of that trade deal. The details, as Christina mentioned. Let's have some details on exactly what's in this phase one trade deal. And of course, we'll hear from Nancy Pelosi at 10 a.m. too. So plenty more to come and discuss on the show, the opening bell. 
to first move live from the New York Stock Exchange and the opening bell here in New York this Wednesday morning. US stocks set to pull back a little bit further from record highs, but hey, let's call that unchanged. Just two hours to go before the US and China sign their phase one trade deal. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin touting the deal today, calling it a landmark agreement. It is the first of its kind, arguably trying to tackle some of the asymmetries here. The question is, how much bite does it have? He said also and reiterated it that tariffs won't be rolled back anytime soon. New evidence of Tame U.S. inflation today as well in the data this morning. Prices on the wholesale level ticking up just slightly in December. That follows the weaker than expected read on consumer prices too. Encouraging news for U.S. policymakers hoping to keep rates on hold steady at this stage. What about our global movers this morning? Shares of Goldman Sachs and Bank of America trading lower in uh, this session this morning so far after the release of mixed Q4 results. Both companies enjoyed strong fixed income revenues, but Goldman's profits missed estimates and Bank of America results also underwhelmed. Shares of Target, meanwhile, down by 6.6%. The retailing giant reported weaker than expected holiday sales numbers. Target says its Q4 earnings outlook, however, remains unchanged. What about Beyond Meat? Lower by uh, more than 5% this morning, too. It's been a hot stock, rising more than 50% in January so far. Wow, the volatility on this one. This time, it's analysts at Bernstein. They lowered their rating today, citing high valuations. So uh, not necessarily about the story here, just about the valuation. All right, let's bring it back to trade. In a few hours, the president of the United States and China will sign a phase one deal following 18 months of a simmering trade war. Joining me now is Elena Miller. He's the CEO of China Beige Book. Great to have you with us. You actually call this phase 1A. Why? Well, they were originally contemplating a bigger deal. Mm. So the, the original deal was going to be a bunch of tariff rollbacks, pulling pulling things back, not just from the September tariffs, but maybe even to the May tariffs. In return, you're going to get more IP promises, more things on tech transfer. And what happened at the end was that the two sides couldn't get together on where they should where they should meet. And there was also a domestic problem for President Trump. He was trying to say, I'm giving this away and then I'm giving that away. And his allies were saying, look, this is too much. It's an election year be careful. So they pared the deal back. It's now very heavy purchases. That's what this essentially is, the purchase, uh, purchase deal. Uh, and in return, the Chinese are going to get a respite from an escalation. And the two sides don't see this as a beautiful deal, despite what they're saying, but it's a good enough deal and it's a stalemate. Do you think China actually fulfills its promises to buy 40 to $50 billion worth of agriculture per year? I mean, we're talking double effectively what we've seen, particularly if you look at the, the 2017 numbers. Is that ultimately feasible? And particularly given it's an election year of 2020, if they don't follow through, what does the president of the U.S. do here? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really not feasible that they adhere to the terms of the deal over a two-year period. But I think the goal for the Chinese is to be very good year one. So there's, there's, a, there's a major incentive for the Chinese to be very restrained up into the election. They don't get any more uh, trade escalation. They look like they put a big da- uh, you know, front loading of, of their commitments early on. And uh, they get some peace to go back and fix their domestic economy for a year. Uh, beyond that, the numbers, are, the numbers are, are nearly impossible. So I think that this is, this is about having a trade truce for as long as you can. And then you move into the second, 
into the second year, the Chinese maybe get a little bit of respite for some more tariffs because they've been promised they've been promised that the, this will be reviewed after the election, and then you see where they are. But this is this is a one-year deal. It's not a two-year deal, despite the fact that what is being advertised as. Are we being too harsh on President Trump? I mean, this is the first deal where you're talking at least about greater purchases. You're talking about technology. At least the discussion is being had. Are we are we giving him a tough ride here because he is trying to tackle asymmetries that have grown up over several decades here? Yeah, it completely depends on on how you frame the conversation. He needs to be given a, a great deal of uh, of support for the fact that he's actually brought these these issues to bear right. for the first time in a serious way. It also, what he's giving away in this particular deal is tariffs that he rolled on and now he's rolling off. So the phase one, he's not giving away much. So there's a lot of reason to say, look, this is a pretty good deal and it's a pretty good political deal for him. Um, now, if you start pulling this back and you start saying from the very beginning, we, we, we went into a trade war with certain goals, how far are we in terms of structural reform, then you can go the other direction. But in terms of just looking at this from phase one, if this is in fact phase one of many, looks pretty good. We're calling it a fragile truce. Do you think the war continues in different ways in 2020? Because it was something that had bipartisan support. Tackling China in various different ways had bipartisan support. One of the things perhaps that's being discussed behind the scenes is restricting, restricting U.S. pension fund money from investing in Chinese assets, Chinese listings in the United States. I mean, that would be um, explosive. Yeah, so we are moving uh, off the trade battleground and into the financial battleground and the tech battleground. And what you said about government pension money could very well be a major issue in 2020. Now, what the U.S. is actually talking about doing is restricting a fairly small amount of money with, you know, 50 billion or so of government pension money from investing in an index that that uh, has a high, a relatively high exposure to Chinese companies, including some that are on the sanction list. It's very explosive politically. Now, if they did something on the government pension money alone, that's not going to that's not going to ruffle too many feathers. Even relationship. the symbolism of the it. symbolism will, and I think markets will be rattled. and They'll say, "Is this the first of many right. steps in financial decoupling?" So that happens. Maybe I'm on here while markets are going absolutely non, you know, going crazy because of the news that this is the beginning of a financial warfare. It won't be, but I think markets will interpret it when they see it as something very dangerous. And that's key. Huawei. So Huawei is the battle that will not go away no matter what. Uh, Congress is laser focused on, on cracking down on Huawei. Um, look, this is not just about a tech company. It's about the future of 5G. And Huawei is the Chinese vehicle for having spread this digital wall around countries going forward. So, you know, President Trump has, has created a peace right now. They supposedly separated the Huawei concessions to the Chinese from the trade deal. But there's a lot of wink-wink going on uh, there. So for now, you're seeing Huawei being kept out of the news. Uh, but I think going forward, Huawei is, is something that both sides of the aisle in Congress want to go at. It's a, it's a very big, long-term security issue for the United States. And we're going to be hearing a lot about Huawei in 2020. It's be interesting to hear what we... Uh get from the presidents uh, this afternoon as well or this morning when they actually sign that deal and of course the details Leila Miller great to have you with us My thank pleasure. you as always the CEO of China Major Book there all right we're going to take a break but uh, coming up on first move biting at Apple President Trump wants Cook to concede and help unlock the iPhones of criminal suspects the latest details on that story after this we're back in two 
Welcome back to the show with a recap of our breaking news out of Moscow. Russian President, uh, sorry, Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has announced that he and the entire Russian government will resign in a major reshuffle at the Kremlin. Medvedev made the statement on Russian state TV sitting next to Vladimir Putin. Fred Pleitgen is in Moscow. Fred, and as you were saying to us earlier, state TV, everybody astonished by the announcement and the timing of it here too. Astonished by the timing, really, really caught off guard by all this. No one really uh, saw this coming. It was interesting because then at some point we saw that video of Dmitry Medvedev and Vladimir Putin together in a room uh, first chatting and then Medvedev announcing his resignation and clearly seeming to pin that on the State of the Union address that Vladimir Putin delivered earlier today uh, where he proposed new constitutional changes that would move power away from the Russian presidency towards the Russian parliament, uh, essentially allowing the parliament to name uh, the prime minister and members of the government as well. Uh, right now, it's the president who actually does that. There are some who believe that this might be Vladimir Putin preparing for 2024 when his uh, fourth term in office, his second of his uh, second round as uh, being president, will come to an end and where he's then supposed to step down on power. There are some who believe he's carving out a role for himself. It's unclear whether or not that's what's behind this move, but that could certainly be the case. Then uh, Putin uh, and Medvedev again were on TV together with um, Medvedev saying that that he believed that the constitutional changes that Vladimir Putin called for today changed the balance of power in the country, and therefore he saw it as important to give Vladimir Putin the opportunity to name a new government to see through that transition period uh, until those constitutional changes can be put in place. Vladimir Putin actually uh, said that he called for a referendum here in Russia uh, to see whether the people here uh, actually want those constitutional changes. So that's going to be something interesting to see whether or not that kind of referendum takes place. It would actually be the first referendum in Russia since 1993. Vladimir Putin also briefly spoke, but he really didn't say very much, offer very much in the uh, reasoning behind all this and, or any sort of uh, information. He just thanked Dmitry Medvedev, said that to, by and large he's very satisfied with the work of the government. He said not everything went well, but that's not something that he expected. He also then said that he was going to carve out a new role for Dmitry Medvedev, possibly as the deputy head of Russia's National Security Council, so dealing with mostly with defense matters here in Russia. And then finally, and I think this is something that's also key as well, Julia, he also said that he was going to speak to all current members of the Russian government. They're still there in a caretaker function before everybody steps down and see whether or not some of them will retain their roles. Of course, that's something that we talked about before. It'll be interesting to see if senior figures like, for instance, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, will stay on board or whether or not he, too, will then eventually leave his office and whether someone new will appear on the scene as the face of Russian foreign policy, Julia. But if we take a step back here as well and, and just look at the relationship between these two men over the past years, I mean, Dmitry Medvedev, prime minister since 2012, before that, four years as president, an effective role swap that we saw to your point about the referendum, what do you think ordinary Russians think of this or do you think they're just perhaps resigned to consolidation of power and power plays for the future? 
Well, I, yeah, I think I think a lot of it. People are just going to see this as as another uh, power move, uh, and not really knowing what exactly the end result of this uh, is going to be. Um, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not that referendum actually takes place. But it's also quite interesting that you point out the relations between Vla- Vladimir Putin and Dmitry Medvedev. They were obviously big political allies uh, for a very long time. With Medvedev first being Vladimir Putin's prime minister when he uh, uh, when he had his, I think, his second term uh, as president, and then stepping up and becoming president himself when they did that swap, Putin and Medvedev. There was, however, somewhat of a rift between these two, uh, reportedly, uh, around the time of the Libya crisis in 2011, when Vladimir Putin was very much calling for Russia to veto uh, a resolution allowing for a no-fly zone over Libya, which then, of course, turned to uh, NATO uh, essentially bombing Muammar Gaddafi's military. That's something that Vladimir Putin criticized in a major way. He felt that Medvedev had been fooled uh, by the West, and he never really seemed to have forgiven Dmitry Medvedev. His role as prime minister really changed a great deal. Uh, when he went back into that office. In many ways, he's seen as kind of a weak political figure right now. He's taken a blame for a lot of the uh, social inequality, the social problems here. And if you look at a lot of the demonstrations that take place in Moscow and in other cities, uh, when it comes to things like economic issues, Dmitry Medvedev, very often the fall guy and the target for that, Julia. Yeah, fascinating. And it will be fascinating to watch. Uh, Fred Pleitgen, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. President Trump, meanwhile, targeting Apple for what he called their refusal to unlock phones used by suspected criminals. The president's criticism comes during the investigation into the fatal shootings of three Americans at a U.S. naval base in Florida last month. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, we were talking about this on the show yesterday. Apple's argument straight down the line here. Look, simply a backdoor for one person can be exploited by bad actors here, too. But that's not stopping President Trump. Absolutely, Julia. And this tweet, uh, which we should uh, show the viewers now, adds an extra layer of complexity to an already very complex situation. He's setting this up uh, as sort of a quid pro quo on the issue of trade. He says we're helping Apple all of the time on trade and so many other issues, and yet they refuse to, uh, to unlock phones used by killers, drug dealers, and other violent criminal elements. They will have to step up to the plate, he says. Uh, so reinforcing uh, the, the, the sense that we see re- fairly regularly from the president that he's willing to use uh, trade and tariffs as a political tool. Now, Apple hasn't responded specifically specifically to this tweet. But as you uh, said, they have responded earlier in the week from, uh, to pressure from the Attorney General, William Barr, uh, to unlock these phones. They said uh, in a statement that they have uh, complied with the investigation, but that this is the red line for them. We have always maintained there is no such thing as a backdoor just for the good, uh, good guys. Backdoors can also be exploited by those who threaten our national security and the data security of our customers. So the Trump administration says they need to uh, unlock these phones uh, in this investigation to make the country more secure. Apple says that will make the country less secure because once this tool is out there, once a locked encrypted iPhone can be opened, then that means that the security of all for iPhone users could be compromised. They did say they have complied with multiple requests for information in this investigation, including providing information such as iCloud backups, account information and transactional data for multiple accounts. But they are not budging on the issue of these phones, Julian. Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I do think it it divides public opinion. Privacy paramount, and Apple says this ultimately, but I can't help but feel, even from my own personal point of view, if it makes the country safer, if it makes people safer, um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm not sure whether I argue against it.
Claire Sebastian, thank you for joining us on that story. All right, uh, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. Delta Airlines is facing questions after a plane dropped jet fuel over Los Angeles on Tuesday, dousing five elementary schools and one high school. Sixty people received treatment in the aftermath, but no one needed to go to hospital. The Delta Airlines jet was forced to release the fuel as it prepared for an emergency landing at LAX airport. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos announcing a billion-dollar investment in India. It comes as the company faces an antitrust probe from the country's competition commission. Amazon says their investment will help bring 10 million Indian businesses online. Yamaha is warning customers not to climb into musical instrument cases. Yes, the disclaimer comes after multiple reports that the former Nissan boss, boss Carlos Ghosn was smuggled out of Japan inside one such case. Not to be recommended, it seems. All right, we're going to take a break here, but uh, after this, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi set to announce the impeachment managers in the upcoming Senate impeachment trial. We'll take you live to Capitol Hill for a preview. Stay with us. We're back after this. first move. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is scheduled to hold a press conference in around 10 minutes time to announce the impeachment managers for the Senate trial of President Trump. Lauren Fox is live in Washington with the latest. We can see them setting up there on Capitol Hill. Lauren, what are we expecting from Nancy Pelosi? What about the one month almost delay that we've seen in handing over these articles to the Senate here, but also who's going to lead it? Well, Julia, that is the big question right now, and we are just minutes away from getting an answer. Of course, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi keeping very closely held who she would choose to be the House impeachment managers. And these are the Democrats who are going to go over to the Senate to make the case for why President Trump should be removed. It's a very important job, and I'll tell you that a lot of members who were interested in, in, in being impeachment managers and their aides had not heard yet as to whether or not they would be chosen. That was as of last night. So she has really kept this going until the very last minute. And again, it has been almost a month of that standoff between Nancy Pelosi and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. She announced last week that her plan was to bring the House managers to the floor today. They will have that vote. And I will tell you, then this evening, we will see some pomp and circumstance on Capitol Hill. The House managers will walk over those two articles of impeachment and deliver them to the Senate, essentially passing the baton for what the House has done over the last several months to the Senate where they will take up their trial. There may be a swearing in of senators and the Chief Justice John Roberts tomorrow, but those formal arguments you might expect to see in a trial aren't expected to begin until next Tuesday. Julia? Okay, so let's say they kick off next Tuesday and we see this Senate trial begin. Talk to me about fresh evidence and talk to me about witnesses here because there's been back and forth. Do they have the numbers of senators here to say, look, we actually do need to hear from witnesses, whether it's John Bolton, of course, former National Security Advisor, and then whether the Republicans turn around and say, okay, if we have to hear from him, we want to hear from Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Risk on well, both sides here. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the evidence 
the new evidence and whether it would be included in the Senate trial. We know that yesterday, Lev Parnas's lawyer's uh, information that he delivered from Lev Parnas's cell phone was delivered to the House Intelligence Committee. They released some of that information yesterday. And my colleague, Jeremy Erb, just ran into Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He said, we should expect that that new evidence could be used in the Senate trial. Now, as to the question of witnesses, what we know is that there will eventually be a vote on witnesses. Now, whether or not there are enough Republicans, four of them to get people like John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney to come to the Senate, either be deposed behind closed doors or come to the Senate and have a live witness in the well of that chamber is still another question entirely. But, you know, I've been talking with moderate Republicans over the last several weeks. And one thing that we do know about people like Senator Susan Collins, a moderate from Maine who's up for re-election in 2020, and she told me this two days ago, was she prefers more information than less. Now, it's very easy to see how you might get three senators to agree to witnesses, people like Susan Collins, people like Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney. It's a little harder to see how you get to that fourth. So a big question remains whether or not witnesses will be part of that Senate trial. Yeah, depends on which side of the aisle you sit as well. Lauren Fox, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. That just about wraps up the show. You've been watching first movie of our impeachment coverage and the speech by Nancy Pelosi continues after this. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.